First Corinthians. Bless us now. Chapter 4. We're going to touch and go more into where we were last week in Paul and city life. And we want to take metaphors of the city life and how Paul has brought it into his letters and his writing, his epistles, and into the gospel. And if you would turn to First Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to read from verse 10. Verse 10. Paul says, We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Notice terminology here now. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and are naked and are buffeted, and have no certain dwelling place, and labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscarring of all things unto this day. Bless his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you, Lord, that you're here. The sense of you moving, a part of your spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us, speak to our hearts, and you instruct us. You teach us in the way which we should go. You guide us with your eye. We thank you, Lord, your eye is ever on us. We give you glory and honor and praise this evening. And we thank you for your darling son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you in his name. We ask you for his glory to take your word, scribe it upon our hearts, imprinted upon our minds. We ask you, Lord, that we would drink it in. And Lord, even as it was said, Lord, may it take, Lord, be taken on board and may it grow down and grow roots and may it grow up and out and bear fruit. Lord, for your glory and for your honor, remember those who can't be with us tonight. Remember those who are sick and in hospital tonight. Remember those, Lord, who are away tonight. Encourage them and strengthen them and encourage your people in this place tonight. Lord, we love you. You're everything to us. You're our heart's desire. You're the very life that we live, the breath that we breathe. In you, we live and move and have our being. And we tell you, Lord Jesus, there's no one like you. Glorify yourself. In your name we ask it. Amen. Last week, if you remember, we looked at Paul's pedigree. And we looked at how Paul said his pedigree, although he had so much behind him in pedigree and his life, his teaching, that it was nothing until he met the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the same for every one of us. We are nothing before we meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ takes us from the pits of despair. He takes us from the dunghill to set us among princes. That we may inherit the throne of his glory. Imagine that. You and I inheriting the throne of his glory to rule and reign with him when he returns. It's a wonderful saviour. And we looked at Paul's pedigree. Then we looked at city life, remember? Paul had said even in our opening reading, you don't need to turn to it, it's just one verse I'm going to pick out. Acts 21 and 39, he says, I am a Jew of Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And if you remember, it means he's, uh, uh, Tarsus was quite a well-known and large city. And we looked at cities like, we read in the letters here, Corinth, and there's Ephesus, and there's Thessalonica. In the, in the word, we think of Rome. We think of Athens and Greece, and many other cities like it. And the hustle of them, the bustle of them, but the sin of them. 
And Paul turning around these, he goes in and he takes those buildings and he takes how they're built in city life and applies it to the gospel and to his epistles. Now, I can't go through all that, obviously. But here he shows himself and the apostles and those in Christ, especially the apostles, what they're thought of to the world, the unsaved world in Corinth and these big cities. Look at our reading here, 1 Corinthians 4. And just for time's sake, that's your eye run down to verse uh, 13. He says, of themselves they're defamed, being defamed, we entreat. Notice what he says, we are made as the filth of the world. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscarring of all things unto this day. Now, we looked at this last week, and I just want to start here because of so much I want to show you tonight. The term here for the filth and the off-scarring gives the idea of a scum on the ground. Isn't it great to know, no matter how low your life has been, no matter how sinful you are, maybe some grew up in a Christian home, and that's great, and God has given you a great testimony to keep you from sin. That's a wonderful thing. But there are many of us, I put myself in here, who were in the world among the filth and the off-scarring of the world, the scum of the world, as it were. Just, we may not have been typically bad people even, but that's what we were in our lifestyles. And the Lord has saved us from it. But with the gospel here being preached in Corinth and other cities, Paul's saying, now, they think they're even higher than us, that we're mad, that we are the filth and the off-scarring, and that's even the sinner. And that's how people are even now in today's age starting to look at the gospel, starting to look at Christians. That you and I are the, the wrong ones, the bigoted ones, you know, the, uh, those who have no tolerance. And you're looked at as one who has no love in them, yet it, nothing could be the opposite. Here Paul says, we're looked like that. Remember how I told you, for example, in the cities, the, the human waste was thrown out into the street. So people got so used to walking up and down the streets and trampled in excrement and urine just all over the streets. And remember, to, to, uh, I gave you some quotations of some of the ancient writers. One of them said, you could smell Rome before you even seen the city. It was so vile. The heat maybe 20-odd, 30-degree heat. And you can imagine everyone, all those houses. And there was, they were starting to build up to six to eight, two, eight stories high. Remember that? We showed you even how Paul preached and there was a young man fell from the third floor. And we showed you that in the book of Acts. And we took you through all of these things to show you that this is why these things are in the, in the scriptures, to show you this life. And Paul had taken this and the higher the tar, the block of the flats, if you want, of the apartments, at this time, the poorer you were because the smaller the space you had. You had some richer people with detached, some semi-detached, then you had them closely knit together. And of course, there was no central heating. There was open fire. Open fire for heating in the winter and open fire all year round for cooking. So then what happened was, you would have got fire all over the place. We'll look at it in a little minute. But the, the idea here is Paul says, we are like the excrement that's been baked hard, squashed under foot of animal and human, and baked hard, and it's left a residue on the ground, and they scrape it off every now and again. He says, that's what they think of us. That's what they think. So whenever we are thinking, you know, I'm getting it hard as a Christian, don't worry, because it was in the biblical times. It wasn't all this wonderful uh, thing that we have this romantic view of it. It wasn't like that. So wherever we go with the gospel, expect to be challenged. Expect opposition. Expect the devil to stir people up against you. But stay strong and stay faithful. And you know what you'll find? That they may think of you different by the time you're finished with them. There are many came to saving faith who thought like that of Paul and the apostles because they seen something in their lives and it was the power of the Spirit. The Lord Jesus was in their life. Now I notice this. 
we looked at this last week, and just want to do this quickly because of so much I want to tell you tonight. The idea here is it comes from a word peri karthama, and it comes from two words for the for the uh, the off scarring and the filth, and it comes from two words, and it's peri, which means around, if you remember. And karthama means to cleanse. It gives the idea of if you're brushing everywhere, you brush all over and you don't miss anything. Or you, you scrape all away or you wash all away. It's the idea of what's gathered up. And so Paul says that's what we're like to them. Now, the word karthama, pari and karthama means to cleanse, like the scum of the bottom of a burnt pot. Something like that as well. But it was also used for the lowest and the vilest of criminals. So whenever there was a real criminal, uh, I mean a, a real hardcore criminal in these days, a vilest of the vile, uh, maybe he had done uh, some vile act, um, whether it was murder or maybe it was something to do with um, incest or, or rape or, or something of the vilest degree that you can think of, they were the karthama of society. And what they did was they used to actually take them out into ships and cast them overboard. And they had this religious view that if they get the worst out of the city, it's like purging the place. And so they were a substitute to get the vileness out of the city. And then we looked last week also at how Peter talks about this flesh that we live in. How we're spiritually in touch with God, we're born again of the Spirit, but yet our flesh has still got that uh, depravity within it and the ability to sin so easily. But when Christ returns, he's going to change that and there'll be no more temptation and there'll be no more struggling with it. We looked at it last week in First Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. Now you can look at that when you go home if you want to write that down. Okay, so we, we think of terms like this parikarthma, although that's in the Greek. In the Old Testament, there's a one or two examples. And you can read it when you go home. I haven't time to go into it because we take me an hour a lot of weeks. In, in uh, Josh, uh, the book of Joshua chapter 7, you'll read about uh, Gideon and Gideon's fight with the Midianites. And you know the story where the, the, choose, the Lord whittles the army down to 300 and a group into three groups of 100 and they smash the lanterns at night and the, the Midianites see the, they think there's three armies at night and they see the bright light when they smash the vessel and they shout the sword of the Lord of Gideon and of Gideon and they chase after the Midianites. Well, we're told that they gather some of the Midianites after that that were caught and they actually slay them upon, over rocks like a sacrifice as if this is what has caused us to sin and cutting out the sin from the nation. And it's the same sort of idea. Get them out of our sight. Lord, we're putting sin away. And here's, a, here's another one. When, when uh, uh, Joshua was leading Israel into the promised land after Moses dies, and there's a city called Ai, and they go up to Ai, uh, and a group of them go up without the leading of the Lord, thinking they'll go up and overtake because they're having victory everywhere. Uh, and there was, they had a defeat there. And it was shown to them that there was sin in the camp. So they looked out and they prayed about it and they searched out and they found there was a man called Achan. And he was called and known as the troubler of Israel from that day. And what happened was he had taken the booty or the spoil and put some of it under his tent for himself. And God says none of it was to be kept. Put everything out of the devil. Put everything out that holds you back. Put everything out that hinders you. Put everything out uh, that would, would go against you. Don't even, don't acknowledge it. Don't even think about it. Don't look upon it. He says, when you go in, just clear the whole lot of them out. And Achan, on his little temptation, he gets some of their trinkets and their gold and he, their little idols and places them under his tent. And that was sin. And they realize here, we're not right before God and there's a defeat here. Doesn't that show us uh, that in our own lives, we are to seek the Lord, that the Lord would show us what we're to put out of our lives? to dethrone the God of our lives when it should be only Christ being the God of our lives. And as the, the old poet says, the greatest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. 
and shows you also not only in our personal life, it shows you in our family life we need to do it. There are some families and they have Buddhas in their house and they're Christians, turf them out. Little Indian charms, turf them out. Little crystal stones, turf them out. Get them out, read it out. Those things can bring spirits to the house. Get them out of your house. Any idols, pictures of Jesus on the wall, tear it down, get it out. It's an idol. Put it out. And also in our assembly, in our assembly, if we have sin in the assembly and it's not dealt with, we need to deal with it. If we have someone who's, uh, who's, if we have someone or peoples who are causing, uh, sowing discord, needs dealt with. It's Akon's tent. Needs dealt with. If we have someone who's backbiting our, our brother or sister, needs stopped. That's, because not only in their life are they in trouble, but it's in the assembly life that brings trouble. Don't let your ear be like a dustbin. Because you know what happens? You'll get your head full of rubbish. Think about it. Here we have the term is to throw it out. And so Paul says that's what they want to do with us. They think we're bad news because we're turning the world upside down by the power of the gospel. We're turning it upside down by the power of the gospel. And you know, whenever Paul is speaking like this, he also tells us that in Romans 13 and 1, that we're to be a living sacrifice. You see, when you and I got saved, and this is something we all, every single one of us, from the pulpit to the pew, from the preacher to the people, we all struggle with something that's called self. It's called the old nature. It's called the old man and the old woman. And we're to be a living sacrifice. In other words, our lives to be on the altar. The altar of sacrifice toward God. Not for, your, for, for salvation now. You're already saved. But a sacrifice saying, Lord, I'm yielding myself fully to you. I'm laying down all that I am that you may fill me with all of you. And Paul tells us to be a living sacrifice. Notice this. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. You might say, well, what's this all got to do with city life? Because it all stems from this off-scarring. Paul is using this. Galatians 3. And let your eye run down to verse 13 just for time's sake. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Amen. He's redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us. So he took the curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now we know Paul's referring to Calvary here. Okay. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy chapter 21. And let your eye run down for me. Just to the very last verse. In fact, 22 and we'll do 23 as well. If a man hath committed a sin worthy of death, if he's one of the vilest of the vile, if he's a vile criminal, if he's a carthama of, of the book of Corinthians or of the New Testament Greek, if any man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and though I hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any way wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is a curse of God, that thy land be not defiled. Now note the language here, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Now the Lord's saying, through Moses, if there's a man and he's hanged and he's punished, worthy of death and he dies, he's capital punishment. Once he's dead, 
He's to be taken down and he's to be put out of the way. And in New Testament terms, he would be the Cartharma. He would be that off-scarring, that scum. So now when you take it to the cross, can you see what they thought of Jesus? So everything you were, everything I was, why do I say were? Because we're redeemed. Isn't that what Paul tells us? Because you're bought, you're his, you're redeemed, you're paid for, you're not under this curse anymore. You're not uh, an off-scarring from God. You're not set aside as if, you know, well, you're unworthy of kingdom, you're unworthy of heaven. You're made worthy because you're in Christ. And the holiness or the righteousness of Christ was placed upon all who are in Christ. And you, your nature, mine, our sin was placed upon him. He became accursed of God. He became as though, and God sent the curse upon him. The sky turns black. He cries, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's hanging on a tree. So this explains something else for us. John 19. This explains something else. John chapter 19. And just let your eye again run down to verse 31. Verse 30. When Jesus was therefore received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. The Jews therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for the Sabbath day was in high day, but sought Pilate that their legs might be broken that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already and they break not his legs. And one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it by record, and the record is true, and he knoweth that these things are true that ye might believe. What they said was, get rid of him on, off this tree. He's a curse of God. He's one big curse of God. And where did was he crucified? Outside the camp, the book of Hebrews tells us. Outside the gate. Outside the city walls. So what were they doing? They were putting the off-scarring, the urine excrement that's been baked hard on the ground, gathering it up. In other words, that's who you are, Jesus. took him outside the gates and they nailed him to a tree. He is a cursed one. See, God has cursed him. Uh, uh, let Elijah come and save him. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. In other words, he's crying, for, crying on his father, crying on God. And they say, oh, he's calling for Elijah. Then let him come and rescue him. If you're the son of God, come down. See, you're not, you're cursed. But he's only cursed because he took your curse and mine. So here Paul says, we're like that now in the sight of people. We're like that now. If you go to Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be flicking through quite a bit of scripture here. And Paul uses this word only, it's a slightly different when he uses it. And Philippians chapter 3 verse 7 Paul says, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul is saying, and we looked at his pedigree last week, of the law, he says, concerning the law, he says, touching the law, I was blameless. In other words, what he was saying was not that he was totally perfect. It meant that he, he sought after to do all that was right before man's tradition of law and God's commandments. 
He says, I was in Hebrew and I was an Israelite. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm of the Jewish faith. He sat under Gamaliel, who was one of the head teachers then. He had all this behind him. And Paul says, I'm throwing all that away because you know what? I need to win Christ. But really, Christ won him. And notice what he says, what he thinks of all those things. In verse 8, at the very bottom, he says, I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung. Paul's given the idea that the world to him, even as academia, and you know, we want, to, we want our children to, to do the best that they can. I want mine to do the best that they can. I want mine to do the best in the world of the calm. We should be doing the best as in work and I, I, I want to say the world in those senses, but never at the expense of the gospel. Never at the expense of Christ. Never. Notice what he says here. I count them but dung. So he's using the same term for the world, for the things of the world. He's using it for his teaching, his academia, for his Jewish religion, all of it. And he's saying, you know what it is? It's dung. Scrape it up and put it right. He says, my faith the righteousness that God has given me in Christ. It's the only righteousness I have. He says, I don't have anything else. But if you look at Paul, Paul, you are a marked man for heaven, surely. You're a marked man for the kingdom. If anybody's going to be in the kingdom, Paul, you're going to be in the kingdom. He says, no. He says, you know what? He says, I'm the chiefest of sinners. But Christ has saved me, cleansed me, forgiven me, justified me. Oh, the righteousness of Christ is upon me and he became a curse for me, lifted the curse from me. He says, now, he says, and that, he says, I'm heaven bound. I'm heaven bound. So when he said he counted it down, but down, in other words, we, you and I, like Paul, we have a substitute for the world. You can go and witness to the unsaved because you have a substitute for what they have. Something better, something greater something eternal and not temporal. You and I have something to give them, something to offer them. You and I have something to tell them. We have a story to tell and we have a glory to show them. And you and I can take that to them because we have a substitute for the world, the lusts of the world, the pride of the world, the things of the world and the desires of the world. But the world has not got a substitute for Christ. That's the difference. That's the difference. The world has nothing to offer you that can replace Christ. The world cannot offer you anything that would match Christ. So, Paul says, just look at verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I count, but loss. Now, you see the term here, it's what's known as a perfect tense. He's counted them loss once and for all. He's made a marked decision by the grace of God. He's counted them loss once and for all. It's done and it's dusted. Paul says, I realize now that that religion I went, the zeal that I had, the passion for it that I had, the things that I did, the learning that I did, sitting under the feet of Gamaliel. He says, even all of that, he says, when it comes to salvation, he says, it's dung. In fact, one theologian says it gives the idea of a dog who defecates in the ground, walks a bit, turns back and walks back. And I don't mean to be rude here, and starts to eat it himself. Paul says, that's what it would be like for me to be there. I'm eating my own tongue if I do. These words are strong, aren't they? And Paul says, I've counted it lost once and for all, done and dusted, it's over. Okay? So whenever we get the end of verse 8, 
Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. It's what's known, it's what's known here as, a, as the present tense. And what we see right now, I'm chasing his excellency. I'm not here to gather around uh, the people of Corinth. I'm not here to gather around even the musicians of Corinth. I'm not here to gather around the pastor in Corinth, you know, or, or in Donna Cloney or anywhere else. I'm here to chase after the excellency of my Lord. And you know, brothers and sisters, you and I, whether we have uh, the most animated, energetic, and passionate preacher, or the most gifted musician, musicians, or or even worship in the in the place. You should and I should be able to come in and not worry if there's 10 of us or 10,000 of us, but you and I should be able to come together and say, I don't care, I'm here for your excellency. I'm here for you, Lord, for your excellency, to know you. I'm here to love you, Lord. Does that make sense to us? So Paul is saying this now. Okay, let's go a little further. A little further. Let me just get a wee drink. So he's looking around the city and he sees this on the ground. So we'll go somewhere else. Look at the buildings. We touched on it last week. The major city dweller, a real hazard was fire because of the open fires for cooking and for obviously heating, especially at winter. And there was a lot of timber used. It was extensive through a lot of the buildings. And, uh, I mean, even lamps at night, you know, for lighting. Didn't have the electric lights and so on, obviously. The ancient writer, Juvenal, uh, said this about living in one of some of the major cities. Says he was prepared to quit the city to escape the fires. Such was the constant fear. And he's quoted as saying this, I must live where there is no fire and the night is free from alarms. In the year 222 AD, there was a writer as well called Ulpian. And listen to what he says. He says that not a day passed in the capital without several outbreaks of fire. Not a day passed without several outbreaks of fire. There were some attempts. Last year, last week I told you, you know, they didn't have the fire brigade we have, but there was at one time, Augustus Caesar uh, got a group together and tried to train the Missouri what we would have firefighters today. But really they were called uh, the Corps of Vigils or Vigils. And they were in the capital and they were watchmen, but they hadn't anything to fight it with. They just could look and say, shout fire, get out. There's no hoses, you know, they didn't have that then. So really they were just watching to try and get them out before the house fell down. And again, taking this in, that's what the preacher is, that's what the Christian is when we're witnessing. You're of the core to be vigilant, to shout fire, get out. Fire, get out. Warning people, of a judgment to come. But nowadays, there's preachers giving you fire blankets and say, fire blanket, stay in. But when that house comes down, you're still dead. Notice this. There were some attempts at this, but as I said, there wasn't much to put the the fire out with when the, fame, the building were engulfed. And so that city life, Paul would witness much of this and he puts it into a spiritual context. And the spiritual context, he actually mentions it in First Thessalonians 5 and 19. And he says, quench not the spirit. Don't try and put that one out. There's a fire you don't put out. So he says, quench not the spirit. Nor is he saying, Lord, would your fire burn like that here? Would your fire burn among men's hearts? Would your fire burn in your church again? 
And he says, don't quench the spirit. In fact, one of the readings uh, on the Greek verb translates it like this. Stop quenching the fire of the spirit. Stop quenching the fire of the spirit. I wonder how many churches in Ulster, Northern Ireland, in Britain, United States or wherever, I wonder how many of us quench the fire of the spirit. Now listen, especially in spiritual giftings, all things are to be done decently and in order. So Paul sets that ground rule down, decently and in order. But nevertheless, he also says, despise not prophesying. Forbid not to speak with tongues. He says, I speak with tongues more than you all. And men seem to rip that part of the Bible out and set it behind them as if it's not there. Now, you notice this. In Ephesians chapter 6. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to see how, remember, the church of Ephesus was in the city of Ephesus, so hence the Ephesian letter. So let's keep this city contact, context here. And notice what he says in chapter 6, verse 16. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against, sorry, chapter 6 and verse 16. I'm reading 12, may I say. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. So your faith, staying in faith, Trusting in the faith that's been imparted and imputed to you by the Holy Spirit, the faith that is in Christ Jesus, he says, there's going to be the darts of the devil fired at you. And they were like arrows. He takes it from those on the city walls who dipped their arrows in tar, set them in the fire, then fired them into the air. And at a venture, they come over like rain and they went into places and people setting them in fire, killing them. And what the soldiers used to do, used to shout, shields, and the shields come up and they hit the shields. And Paul says, take your faith like a shield. And the idea here is it's like a Roman shield. It's like a big door, big square shield. And he says, take that shield, he says, and whenever the devil starts to fire at you, remember your faith, he says, and quench that fire. Quench that fire. Another fire that wasn't to be quenched and couldn't be quenched was in Exodus 3 when Moses saw the burning bush. The bush was in fire, it was burning, but yet it was not consumed. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, you can read that when you go home, when on the day of Pentecost, there were cloven tongues like as of fire came and sat upon the 120 in the upper room and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And this is the fire, Paul says, don't quench that one. Don't quench it. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul takes the, if you want, the ever-present threat of fire which hung over the cities of his time and he uses it for a metaphor. I want to show you a wee bit more on this one. Do you know what a metaphor is? Let me just give you, an, let's, let me give you the, the, uh, the definition of it. Metaphor is a figure of speech by which a thing is spoken of as being that which it resembles. Not fundamentally, but only in a certain marked character. So what it means, let me put it in a nutshell. He's not saying this is exactly it. He's saying I'm taking the context. What gives me the idea of the spirituality and the spiritual warfare here. What was happening in reality in the cities and the fires and so, I'm bringing this in. It just resembles that, okay? He's not saying it's an actual thing. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We looked at this last week. I want to go further into it. Verse 10. Paul says, According to the grace of God which is given unto me, notice, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. 
thereupon, for other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work what sort it is. Notice that. The fire will try every man's work what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Paul, what are you telling us here? Well, this is what he's saying. He mentions the foundation that we are to build on. And if it's not, the foundation of it isn't right, the rest of the building isn't right. He's seen them building here, and a lot of them were shoddy workmen. Excuse me, and they're shoddy workmen, and they were, they were using cheap materials, and they weren't digging down deep enough, and their, their foundation wasn't strong enough, and the buildings were collapsing. As soon as there was a fire, it was just like a deck of cards folding on top of people. And some people, if they heard the shout, fire, get out, they were able to get out, and they lost everything. They hadn't time to get any goods out at all. Sometimes just got themselves out, so they were saved from the fire. So as by fire, as it were. They just got out by the skin of their teeth. And Paul is saying, look, every Christian, make sure your foundation is Christ. And when we're building in our lives, there's going to be a day when we'll stand before God and give an account for our Christian life. Now, not for works for salvation, but for working because we are saved. Service. Service. He says, and there will be those who will suffer loss, but they'll be saved so as by fire, as if they got out with nothing, the skin of their teeth. But to be those who will have reward. Remember, Jesus gives the talents, and in our one, he gives the coins, the money, and he says, be with us over ten cities and five cities and all this, because there's reward. People think it's that's all waft to heaven in a handbasket, and we'll get a halo of harp, and we'll, you know, we'll float around in a white cloud. It's not like that. We're going to be serving the king. Notice this. Romans chapter 14 and verse 12. Romans 14 and 12, Paul says, writing to the church at Rome, not the church of Rome, the church at Rome. Okay. Writing to the church at Rome, he says, so then every one of us, Paul's including himself, so then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Church. He's not even writing about the unsaved because they will give an account. But we're talking about as a church, every one of us will give an account of himself to God. Notice what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. Here again, writing to the church at Corinth, the Christians. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this judgment seat is not the great white throne judgment for the unsaved in Revelation chapter 20. That's not that. This is called the Bema seat. That's what it's known as. It was a tribunal seat. It was a seat at games where the winner came and got their garlands in their head or the, they didn't get anything. You know, you get them in the Olympic games, first, second, thirds, gold, silver, bronze. And it's, it was a tribunal seat. And we will be before Christ in a tribunal seat when Christ will look at our lives and we will see where we have built on his foundation and have we built of, of, of gold and silver and precious stones. In other words, have we been true and, and been sincere? Have we been rash with our mouth? Have we been one who cuts asunder people? Are we, you know, and he's going to say, whoa, 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 hold on. What about this? What about that? And every idle word will be checked for it. And you think to hear preachers today, you know, you can just live how you like. Isn't that what they tell you? Live how you like. Sure, it's under the blood and we're under grace. And look, it is under the blood and we are under grace. But we can't because we'll stand before him. But we'll be saved because of his grace. But we'll suffer loss. We'll suffer loss. Notice what he says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body. In other words, when he was on this earth alive. According to that, he hath done whether good or bad. So it's not about salvation now. 
It's about service. Because good or bad doesn't save you. You're saved by grace through faith. So evidence from what is known uh, from the, what was called the Roman insula shows that a ground plan for building in these days was given. These are records that could be looked up. And roughly you would have got between 350 to 475 square yards of an area in a city. And they would have said, right, here's a plot. We want to build X, Y, Z. And that was the maximum for the size of the city. And like a gym would understand all that sort of stuff better, you know, with your plans and all that sort of. And it was all, even then, the Romans did it. Now, notice this. It was well known that foundations were very inadequate, and as I said, they would cause buildings to collapse. Listen to what uh, Juvenal says again, this ancient writer. He says, We inhabit a city propped up for the most part by slats. For that is how the landlord patches up the cracks in, our, in the old wall, bidding the inmates sleep at ease under the ruin that hangs over their heads. There's a few landlords like that even today, isn't there? And what he's saying is, you know, this place is ready to go. You're saying, you're all right, sleep at ease. First sign of fire, first sign of earthquake and a shaking, the whole lot comes down and they're all gone. There's a whole lot of prophets like that today. False ones. There's a whole lot of preachers like that today. There's a whole lot of ministers like that today. You'll be all right. Be a good person. Don't need to be saved. Live how you like. You'll be all right. So Paul takes this, brings it into the gospel. He says, what would happen when that day when our building, what we have built here, when it's tried before him? Turn to Ezekiel 13. Ezekiel 13. You know, next week we're going to have a prayer meeting prayer meeting every night next week, Monday to Friday. So can I take a wee bit longer on this tonight? Is that all right? Just to finish this off. I don't want to miss a weekend and trying to get it together again, okay? Ezekiel 13. Now read the chapter. Mark it and read the chapter maybe when you go home. But just for time's sake, let your eye run down to, say, verse 10. This talks about prophets coming and prophesying it was to all Israel. But remember, Israel, Israel is split now into two kingdoms. The house of Israel is already gone. There's only a wee remnant about. They're taken into captivity. And of course, we know the story. They, they go into captivity and they go east and, or west, sorry, and, and so on. And the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, go east into Babylon. And Ezekiel's here in, in Babylon. And the Lord's speaking about the house that's being built in Jerusalem again and how Israel, the house of Israel were and the house of Judah were. And the Lord's starting to show them all these things. Notice this, verse 10. Because, even because they have seduced my people saying peace and there was no peace and one built up a wall and lo, others daubed it, notice, with untempered mortar. Say unto them which daub it with untempered mortar that it shall fall. There shall be an overflowing shower, and ye, O great hailstones, shall fall, and the stormy wind shall rend it. Notice, a stormy wind shall rend it. Lo, when the wall is fallen, shall it not be said unto you, where is the daubing wherewith ye have daubed it? Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will even rend it with a stormy wind in my fury, and there shall be an overflowing shower in mine anger and great hailstones in my fury to consume it. So will I break down the wall that ye have daubed with untampered mortar and bring it down to the ground so that the foundations thereof shall be discovered. Notice, the foundations thereof shall be discovered and it shall fall and ye shall be consumed in the midst thereof and ye shall know that I 
and the Lord. And I will accomplish my wrath upon the wall and upon them that have daubed it with untempered mortar. And will say unto you, the wall is no more, more neither they that daubed it to wit. The prophets of Israel which prophesied concerning Jerusalem which see visions of peace for her and there is no peace, saith the Lord. The Lord says, see what they're building. It's like slats of wood, old untempered mortar. He says, when the storm comes, it's not built on the right foundation, which is me. It will fall. You know what that reminds you of? Matthew chapter 7. There was a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the storms came. And the wind came. And the rain came. And the house stood. And there was a, uh, the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. See how Jesus is looking through the word? He is the one speaking here. He says, this is what's happened here. The winds came and have sent the rain. And look, he says, look at it. They crucified him. Count him as scum and filth and offscoring. Put him outside the city. Said he's accursed of God. Isn't the word of God amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. Okay. So this is my last portion that we'll go into. We want to look at building and demolition. Building regulations, Jim. Don't worry, it's not hard because I don't know them. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 3 again. First Corinthians chapter 3. And just let your eye run down to verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay? Paul takes this metaphor and their foundations as he's watching around these cities. And he takes a word here. And we'll be familiar with it maybe, some of us anyhow. And it entailed preparing surfaces by cutting and rubbing and testing and what was uh, known as the cannon. It was a straight edge. A plumb line, as we would call it today. Straight edge. Even when someone is doing, you see them doing the flooring and the concrete and the cement, and they put the straight edge over it, they level it all out and smooth it out. Or up a wall and they see the wall is smooth and the plaster's been smoothed. Well, that was called a cannon. We think of a cannon as something that fires like a big gun. That was called a cannon. And it looked for unevenness. Now, a cannon was a measuring stick. And it brought in standard for making judgments and measure. Okay? For example, you'll read about it. Ezekiel, well, not look it up, but you can look it up and tell me if I get this right. It's over the top of my head. Ezekiel chapter 43, uh, um, the measurements there. And you'll also read about it then in the book of Revelation. It's a mirror of it, if you can see it. I'll get the chapter wrong, so I'll not even guess it for you. I'll find out later. And whenever Paul takes this and he sees them building, and he sees them using these methods to measure, Second Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10. And verse 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. <laughs> I'll explain it in a moment. <laughs> But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reach not unto you, for we are come as far as to you also 
and preaching of the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly to preach the gospel in this in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready by our hand. Now, here's what we want to look at here. In that, those verses there, Paul uses the word for canon three times and he uses the word measure six times. Okay? Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. Let's look at it. But we will not boast of things without our measure. And every time if you wanted to underline the word measure there, uh, it's, the word, it's the word like a meteorol. Where do we get our word meter from even today? Beyond our meters. So he's looking at this foundation where he's building beyond our meters. See the way you're building your foundation there? We'll not build our foundation beyond ours. And there's men who are building and it's not their foundation. It's not the right foundation or they're building somewhere where they're measuring to see whose foundation is better than the other one. <laughs> Still happens today, doesn't it? But notice this. Whenever it comes down to the word for canon, it's the word rule. Let's look at verse 13. For we will not boast of things without measure, but according to the measure of the rule See the word ruler, it's canon. Which God hath distributed to us a measure to reach even unto you. Now, Paul says in verse 12 that there were false apostles and preachers coming. And he says they're trying to measure beyond where they should. They're thinking more highly of themselves than they ought. He's saying that their self-importance, in other words, they're full of the memes. Me, 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 me. Everything, the central vision of Christ is taken away and placed on them. It shows their own self-importance. And Paul is saying, self-praise is dispraise. In other words, in John chapter 8, and verse 18, one little verse, the Lord is actually, the Lord Jesus is speaking. John chapter 8 and verse 18. Just a few scriptures and we should be finished. John chapter 8 verse 18. Notice what it says here. The Lord Jesus says, I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Know what they said to the Lord? You're a false Preacher, you're a false prophet because you're bearing witness of yourself. And it says, if, if you had a real witness, if you had a real testimony, you don't need to promote yourself. You don't need to be the big man in the wee picture. A man's gift makes room for him. And God elevates and lifts up. A woman's gift. So Paul says now they're measuring each other. Trying to see, they're trying to get the preeminence. When the only one that has the preeminence or should have is Christ himself. Now notice this. John's Gospel still chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 30. The Lord Jesus says, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. You sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man. But these things I say that you might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, 
and you are willing for a season to rejoice in that light. But I have a greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father hath given me to finish. The same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. Here's what the Lord is saying in a nutshell. He's saying, my measure. Christ has the Spirit without measure. But as a man, he's saying, my measure is everything that the Father wants me to do. That's what the Lord's saying. So Paul's saying there's these who are going beyond that. And they're witnessing falsely. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, there are those that work and serve and speak outside their own measure, Paul was saying. And he says they're not wise. Verse 13, he says, but we will not boast of things without our measure. Speaking of himself now, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us. You know what Paul says? I know my calling. I know where I'm to be. I know what I have to do. I know the anointing he's given me. I'm not going to go beyond that measure. He says, I'm going to go by the rule which God has given me. The word rule is canon. I'm bringing you a point to close this whole study up, okay? It was canon. And the canon it was this reed, this rod, or boundary mark to make sure it was straight, like a plumb line of the straight edge of a, of a piece of wood we would use. They had a measuring rod and it was called a canon. Now, when you look at your Bible, 66 books of this Bible, that's known as the what? The canon of Scripture. Isn't that right? That's where it comes from. That's where you get that word. So if anybody says to you from now on, do you know what the canon of Scripture means? Yes, you do. Canon was a rule. It was a boundary. There were marked out area that God had given us that we cannot go beyond. And see what's in that book. We cannot go beyond it. That is our rule. The word of God that's in our hands is the mind of God to all of us. It's the measure of God for our life. And what he says he means, and he means what he says. So this canon of Scripture is our Bible, and it marks out the Bible as a book that's different from all other books. That's what it means. For example, the canon of a cathedral. You know, Some men are called canons in a cathedral. The idea is that they have to go in accordance with the rules and the statutes of the cathedral. They can't go beyond that boundary. But now that's a religion. We have the canon of the word of God. We have the canon where the spirit brings us through, gives us the line, the plumb line, the straight edge, tells us how we're building. And so when we're building according to this, and this is building us up, then when we get to that place uh, 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 at the the beam of seat of Christ, they'll say, let me see what you've been building on. Son, you've been building on the word of God. Daughter, you've been building on the word of God. You haven't went out and added to my word, and you haven't taken away from it. You haven't built anything wonky or anything false because it's found in my word. And to thy end, to the joy of thy Lord. So, I'll finish with this. Thank you for your attention. Paul says that the increase of the Corinthians' faith was the confirmation that is coming to the Corinth, that, that his coming to Corinth was God's will and would encourage him to travel further in the gospel. Notice this. Once the stones of the building had been shaped, bronze dials, holes were put in. They were tightly put together. And they put holes through in bronze dials. They, they went right through from one stone into another. They were tightened together. It would be like a rivet, maybe today, the way they would do a rivet. Paul takes this, and this is the last one for us. The builders of the day, if I can pronounce this word, it's something like synharmologio or logo or something like that, or lego. 
And it takes the idea and the metaphor, Paul brings it, and he brings it into the scriptures, a book of Ephesians to finish. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21. Let's go to verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that's their teachings, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. No, Paul's saying, see how you build your buildings? You get the stones and then they're in place. You've made them right size. You've put the right foundation on. You've made sure they're all together. There's no drafts getting through and everything. Right, that's how it's meant to be. You've put these dials through and it just tightens them together, binds them tight together and holds them close together. He says, well, so Christ does to you and I in him. Paul says, and he's holding us together through the Spirit. Chapter 4, last verse. Verse 16. From whom the whole body fitly joined together. It's the same word, fitly. It's the same word for harmologo or sharmologo. I can't pronounce it. It's the same word here. And do you know these two verses I've given you were fitly as in it? Chapter 2 and chapter 4. It's the only two places this is used in the whole of the New Testament. Because he's talking about pulling the whole church together. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure. Of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Have you edified someone yet today in love? Pull them together. Come on. We're in Christ. You're my brother. You're my sister. You know what? You've been missing. I'm missing you. You're sick. I'm visiting you. You're lonely, I'm coming to see you. You're struggling, I'm coming to strengthen you. To lift up your hands, he says. Put each other close together in the spirit and in love. Love one another. You see how Paul brings that right out of all the buildings of the city. So is Paul on city life. God bless you.